Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby. Today we're doing our next question in our series on hard questions about the Christian faith. And Greg, could you introduce for us what our next question is? So the question that we have today is how did predestination and free will work together? Great. And when you use those terms predestination and free will, could you give just a or could we give just a very brief summary of what we mean by those terms? Yeah, I think that that's a really good thing to define because what I've realized when we talk about this topic and in general when I've heard people discuss the topic of predestination and free will, usually I've seen a lot of people kind of talking past each other. And we've talked about this before, but it's so important when you are having a discussion to be able to articulate people's perspective other than your own in a way that they'd say, yes, I agree, that's my perspective. And so when it comes down to these terms, when we're talking about free will, I think what people usually mean and what we want to mean is we have the ability to make real decisions that we're responsible for. We have the ability to enact our will and we have the ability to choose for ourselves. We're not just robots without any autonomy. And when we say the word term predestination, what we mean is that God has the ability to choose and save people by his own choice. So those are kind of what those mean. Yeah. And when it comes to this issue, the three of us would all say that we do hold to the view of predestination. Uh, That doesn't mean we don't believe in free will. We also hold to a view of what free will is, and we'll get into that a little bit. But as a Christian, something that's important to know is that predestination isn't just a theological concept that people have made up, but it is a word that actually occurs in the Bible. And one of the most um, notable places is in Romans 8. I believe it's Romans 8, 28. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we're talking about predestination, we're talking about a concept that every Christian has to give some sort of account of what does this word mean? What does this concept mean biblically and how do we understand it? And the three of us would all hold to a view that we really do believe God does determine and choose the salvation of people, that he works in history intentionally and purposefully to save people, um, and that he is in control. And so, Doug, I'm going to have you give us a little bit of background, kind of where did, how did we get to that point? And even how did we as a family get to the point where we would hold to that sort of a view that God is in control, even of our destiny. Yeah, because I think for me growing up, I always just assumed a God is sovereign, in control view. Before I even knew the terms Calvinism, Arminianism, predestination, free will, which we'll talk about some of that in a little bit. But part of how that came about was in 1995, our family was in a car crash. And when that happened, our mom ended up with chronic pain and years and years of not being able to sleep and just a ton of issues. And during that period, wrestling with, is God good? 
if this is happening. And that'll be part of what we talk about next time, the problem of pain and evil. But that was one of the things that my parents were wondering, did Satan win this time? Could God be good if this is going on? What happened? And then my parents were in campus ministry at the University of Northern Iowa, and a lot of students towards the end of the 90s were starting to get into John Piper and excited about Calvinism and all of this stuff. One of the students was Justin Taylor, who now has a blog for the Gospel Coalition, and he was talking to my dad, some of these other guys were, and our dad um didn't have a calvinistic view and as these guys were talking he's like i don't know and over time got to the point of saying i think you guys are right but i'm gonna ask for you to be patient with me as i'm still trying to figure this out trying to see what's going on and over time our dad began to have a bigger and bigger view of god's sovereignty and our mom as well especially as she was wrestling with her own issues and pain and then that ended up transforming how they viewed ministry how their trust was in god and what amount of pressure they felt on their own shoulders yeah and i think even one of the things growing up we would always kind of had this understanding of is that god is good God is in control and he's intentionally working through everything that goes on. And even with yeah, mom's chronic pain, that was part of the story of we believe God is good. We believe he's in control and we were praying for healing for years and years and years. And mom has experienced some um, freedom and pain even more recently. But um, yeah, I think that has been shaping for us and our family, even going through some of that pain and viewing Okay, what does it mean for God to really be in control? Doug, it might be helpful for you to give some definition. When we say Calvinism, uh, what does that term mean? Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting is that Calvinism and Arminianism has come to be thought of predominantly as a question over five points regarding how predestination and free will work together. And the Calvin and Jacob Arminius never actually talked with one another. They never argued. But what happened was Calvin's like overall view of the Bible, Arminius rejected five points in that. And then he actually never wrote anything. But then his followers ended up opposing the system of Calvinism and said, here are five ways that we disagree with John Calvin. And then people that have followed Calvin said, no, we agree with Calvin here. But what's interesting is that Calvin and Jacob Arminius had the majority of their theology in common. But now as we think about the two of them, we think, oh, they're so different and opposed. But that's because we almost take for granted all the things that they'd agreed upon. So Calvinism in the truest sense, doesn't focus on predestination. It's focusing on the glory of God and his work to bring about a total redemption of the earth. But as we think about it now, a lot of people think, oh, it's referring to election. It's referring to predestination. It's referring to pre-will. I can't lose my salvation. And that's definitely an important part of Calvinism. But 
uh, that's not actually the center of it. But a lot of times when people talk about Calvinism now, all they're thinking about are these questions between how Calvin and Arminius or John Wesley thought about this stuff. So I think it's helpful to realize they actually had a ton in common. But when we th think about arguments in the Christian faith, we don't really tend to look at what they held in common. We just look at where did they argue with one another? And sometimes today people, instead of saying, I'm a Calvinist, will say, I'm reformed. And it basically means the same thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's yeah. the same thing for the five points. But I think reformed doesn't have the same derogatory sense that sometimes people feel about Calvinism. They mean the same thing. But I think reformed, people tend to think not just about the five points, but of the whole view of scripture that is kind of how we should think about Calvinism, but Calvinism, people tend to think predestination is what it's all about, but that's yeah. not really the center of Calvin. Yeah. Doug, I got a question for you that I think would be a good follow-up then, and that's why would we bother, or why would you bother calling yourself either Reformed or Calvinist? Why would you put a label like that? I mean, shouldn't we just believe what the Bible says and just say we believe the Bible? Yeah, because we definitely all want to believe what the Bible says. And the reality is that in this conversation, both Calvinists and Arminians are not saying, um, I just believe logic or I just believe reason or I've received some extra revelation, but scripture says we have free will, so therefore I'm an Arminian. Or sometimes people say, yeah, but it also shows God's sovereignty, so I'm a Calvinist. So I think it's helpful to realize here that everybody is trying to hold to what does scripture say, and there's disagreements there, but what's helpful is to identify what do we mean by what scripture says, because I think if we don't identify what we mean by scripture, it's easy to be kind of led astray, or sometimes people that won't share, here's what I believe end up just kind of coming up with their own system that may actually not be Christian at all. So I think sometimes when people say, I'm a Calvinist, they actually hold the beliefs that are against Scripture. Sometimes when people say, I'm an Arminian, they hold the beliefs that aren't actually in Scripture either. So it's important for us to actually know what do we mean by these terms. Yeah, and I think it's part of, too, where we do use creeds. And I think you've mentioned this before, Doug, that we do use creeds in the Christian faith, and creeds are credo, which is I believe, um, or we believe. And the idea of a creed is you're making a statement about the things that you believe, and you're not doing that to go against the Bible, but you're trying to state in explicit terms what you believe the Bible to say. And I think that's part of this is it's somewhat just being aware of where our influences do come from, but then also saying this is what we believe lines up with Scripture. And so in some ways, when you hold to... Um, a theological camp, you're not doing so to say, I believe implicitly as this, this is the foundation, but this is my understanding of what I do believe scripture is actually trying to communicate. And I think sometimes there's a sense of humility in saying, you know, I just believe the Bible, but the reality is we all have teachers, people who have influenced our thinking, um, and it's understanding where those influences come from and understanding how we would kind of lay out what do we really believe the Bible does teach about who God is, how he has worked in history, um, and his work. So, Greg, a question for you then. 
this is a issue where there's a lot of disagreement within Christianity. And I think one of the things, even as we enter in this conversation, we want to be careful of is, is not just kind of feeding into a dispute or an argument that's going to separate in any way. But if you could help us even just think through what's kind of at the core of the disagreement between someone who would identify themselves as Reformed or as Calvinist as, and as someone who would identify themselves as more uh, from an Arminian perspective or uh, pushing that idea of human free will. Yeah, that's a good question and I think a really important one because I mentioned this earlier, but I think that so often I see people kind of talking past each other when it comes to this issue. And specifically, the biggest thing that I hear is, well, if God, if predestination is real, then we don't have free will. And that's kind of the assumption that's made. And yet I've never met someone who believes in predestination and God's sovereignty who wouldn't affirm that we have free will. And so that's a lot of where the confusion kind of comes from with this specific issue. And so what I want to kind of help clarify then is where does the disagreement really lie? And where, because I think, like we said, there's probably a lot more similarity than difference in ways that we might realize when it comes to this. And so I think the big misunderstanding though is what is the nature of our free will? And someone from an Arminian camp versus a Calvinistic camp would kind of have a difference in their view of our own human nature and how do we actually accept God. So the Arminian would say that we ultimately are the ones who are the final decisive agents in our salvation. So we choose basically if we want to accept God or not. And the Calvinists would say that we have free will in that way, but our human nature, our fallen condition, based on passages like Romans 3, is that we had never seek God in ourselves. We had never choose God if we were left to our own uh, devices. And so in order to actually accept God, God has to interact in our life and he has to uh, change our heart. And so that's kind of where the disagreement is, is who's the who makes the final decision in our salvation. And yeah. the Arminian would say, I initiate that. And the Calvinist would say that based on Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that the faith that you have to believe in God is a gift from God itself, not something that you muster, but it's something that God gives you and... Uh, God's the one who reveals himself to you. And then what the difference is when we talk about the idea of free will is the Calvinist would say, in my free will, I would never choose God. And the nature of our free will is that we're kind of enslaved to sin. And so we would never choose God. But what happens when you become a Christian is God actually changes your will. So they'd say, we have the ability to enact our will, but we don't have the ability to change our will. And God has the ability to change our will. Yeah. And I think an important concept even to tie in with that, Greg, is from an Arminian perspective, even there is this view of God is still the one initiating. He has sent his son into the world. There is this broad, all-encompassing offer of come to Christ. And I think a lot of the desire people from an Arminian camp are saying, listen, like you have to preach that Christ is, is is offered, he's truly offered to all humanity. And 
an important concept, I think, too, to understand is the concept known as prevenient grace. And prevenient grace is a concept that was, I believe, developed by John Wesley. But prevenient grace kind of accounts for this fact that in our human condition, we are disposed to rebel against God. That since sin is in the world, we have become slaves of sin. And yet what prevenient grace says is that God, through his grace, enables us to have a real valid response to the cross where we can choose to receive or we can choose to reject the cross. And so that's the idea of provenient grace. It still is accounting for this fact that um, sin is entered into our hearts, that we're corrupt, and yet there's even a grace of God that enables us. It gets us to this point where being seeing some of the light, we can actually have the ability to respond to the grace of God. And so interesting is I don't know how many people now in our culture who would consider themselves Arminian would understand that, but I think a lot of Arminian people who have studied a lot would st- would at some point hold something like provenient grace because they do understand there actually is an effect that the sin has on our minds and our wills. Mm-hmm. Greg and Mark, I think that what you guys are saying there is really helpful because both the Calvinist and the Armenian agrees we can only be saved by Christ. We are unable to save ourselves. And they both say it is dependent on grace and that for us, what we do is a response. So, but then this idea of prevenient grace in Arminianism is saying that because of the work of God in Christ, that it's now possible for us to receive that and to really make a choice, yes or no. God already knows from the Arminian point what we will decide, but he gives us the option to reject or accept it. But then, Greg, like you were saying, the Calvinist says, we, even with the work of Christ on the cross, won't accept God by faith unless, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, faith is given to us as a gift by the Holy Spirit. So I think even there to see oh, they actually are much more similar. Everyone believes we're dependent on the grace of God because we won't choose God on our own. But the Arminian would say, because of the prevenient grace of God, he makes it possible for us to admit our weakness and to believe in him. The Calvinist says, God doesn't just make it possible for the believer to have faith in him, but actually gives that faith as a gift also. Yeah. One one last clarification just for the differences between the two is let's say you're at church and they do an altar call where they ask if you want to come up front and accept Jesus. The Arminian would say that once you get to the front and you pray the prayer to ask God into your heart, that's when you are saved. But the Calvinist would say when you hear the altar call and God stirs your heart, that's when you're saved because he gives you a new nature and that new nature brings forth repentance. And so before you walk up to the altar, you're saved. But the Arminian would say you get saved once you get up to the altar and pray the prayer. Yeah. Or or once you have that belief of faith in your heart. Yeah. um, Once you've decided and responded. Yeah. So maybe then let's go through, like we've been doing, a few of the ways that we would answer this question. So, Doug, if you were asked the question, you know, how do predestination and free will work together? What would be your what would be your couple minute response to that? Yeah, I think 
one of the pieces for me is that I answer this question somewhat differently based on who's asking. So if it's a young guy who's really excited about Calvinism for the first time in his life, I'll answer it differently than if I'm doing evangelism and someone's saying, wait, how can I actually believe in God if it's predestination? Doesn't that kind of let me off the hook or isn't that unfair of God? So I think it's important to know who we're talking to and to see what is the question that they're asking because they might be asking, is God fair or is he unjust to condemn us if I don't have free will? Oh, that's a good question. People are also asking, do I actually make decisions? And tied to that is, can I actually be responsible for my actions? And I think what we would all want to get to is that predestination does not mean that I'm not responsible for my actions. How do those two things hold together? Ah, there's some mystery there. But this mystery of two things that seem to be impossible to fit together isn't limited to this conversation so to say that god is a trinity and one i can't fully resolve that to say that scripture is inspired and god breathed and the work of men oh there's some mystery there to say that jesus is truly god and truly man ah there's some mystery And so part of it is to realize that there are mysteries in Scripture that we can't totally get our mind around. And one person that's been helpful to me in this is J.I. Packer, because he says that the debate between predestination and free will is something that we often think about as a paradox, which is something that can't possibly actually be true, fit together. But he says it's better to consider it an antimony. And he says that the definition for of antinomy in this spot is that it's when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. So what he's saying, and this is from Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, it's a great book on how does our evangelism fit with the reality that God is sovereign. He's saying is that in scripture, we see that both of these are clearly taught And sometimes we want to deny, oh, well, then we don't have any free will because it's a lot easier to just say predestination is the only one or free will is the only one. But he's saying we need to hold them together. One other quote that I thought was really helpful is uh, what the Bible does is to assert both truths, predestination and human responsibility side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, is the position that we must take in our own thinking. Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these true truths to each other. I wouldn't try, he replied. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibilities are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. How they work together? Uh, There's some mystery there. None of us grasp that entirely. But I think it is clear across scripture that God is 
sovereign, that he predestines, and that we are responsible for our actions. So what we're saying is there just doesn't have to be a war where around those two, whereas that's usually almost all of what this, what we, the way the debate goes is arguing between those yeah. two and the Bible doesn't make a dichotomy that's between those two in the way that most of this debate is based. And therefore, I think that that's why most of this discussion, we're just talking past each other and both have valid points of saying we do have responsibility and that's true. And we hold to that in scripture. And like you were saying, the other ones say predestination is very clear in scripture. It's irrefutable. It's there. You can't, you can't get rid of it. It's just so clear. <laughs> and so that's, I think, why the we are just often talking so far past each other. Yeah. Yeah. My answer for this question, I would say predominantly how, you know, how can predestination and free will exist together? I think my favorite passage to go to is John 6. And I enjoy John 6 because both Jesus makes explicit statements about this idea of election, God's choice is what I mean by that. God's choice of people, his work to draw them to himself. Um, so both there's these explicit statements that speak to the idea of election and predestination. And then there's also a story that I think portrays the very thing that Jesus is talking about. And so John 6 is after Jesus has fed a large crowd by multiplying loaves and fish. Then they come to him later and he talks about himself. And in John 6, 35, he makes this offer of himself and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I think of all the verses in scripture, that is one of the many that makes it so clear that Christ is there. He is offered. He is out there. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes yeah. in me, whoever believes in me. It's like very, very clear. You come to Jesus, you will be saved. No one has to wonder, if I come to Jesus, can I be saved? He says, you come to me, you can be saved. And then in verse 44, in the same discourse, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them, um, unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. And so he just said, whoever comes to me, and then he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And you think, well, what's happening here? And I think ultimately that these truths are, like you said, Doug, they're not enemies. They're actually friends. They, they do work together. Jesus is not confused here. He knows that he's putting a universal offer out that if you would come to him, you would have salvation. And yet he also knows that as he's offering himself, that it is going to take a special work of the Father, his own Father in heaven, to actually draw someone that they would believe in him. Now, the way this plays out in the narrative is that there are those there, the Jews who agree or who believe in him, and there are the Jews who disbelieve in him. So you have his disciples and you have many others there. And there's a dispute. And in verse 52, they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So there's confusion. And mm -hmm. Jesus then says, you know, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And he's giving this hard teaching that many confuse. And so in the narrative, there are those who are misunderstanding. And what I'd say they're interpreting it according to the flesh, their normal human understanding when confronted with the teaching of Jesus doesn't work. And they reject him. And so after they reject him, it says in verse 60, you know, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Then he says in verse 63, and I think this is essential, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So Jesus is saying, it is the Spirit who gives life, who reveals this truth, this mystery. There's those who interpret what he's saying according to the flesh. They can't get and understand his teaching. There are those who it is revealed by the Spirit what it means, and they are those who are given life through his teaching. He says it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all, which means in our normal human condition, I believe we will always reject Christ. And yet it's the spirit who gives life. And then in verse 65, Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the father. So it's the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. You cannot come to me unless the father draws. And yet Jesus is standing there offering himself. If you would just come to him, you would be saved. And one of the couple things about this that are pretty incredible. Um, first is we see again, the narrative playing out the truths that Jesus is saying then we also see the whole work of the Trinity in accomplishing salvation. Because you see Jesus who is standing there saying, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see him saying that it's the work of the Father to draw people that they would believe in him. And then he says, it's the Spirit who gives life. And so you have the entire Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working here to draw and to work and to bring to salvation these people who would believe And Jesus is attributing the fact that some reject him because they interpret it according to the flesh, and yet some receive because of the special divine working of his Father. What I think that means then is that these two realities do come together, that Jesus is truly offering himself. He is truly out there saying, come to me, come to me, come to me. And yet there's also a reality that Jesus knew it was going to take God's work. And so what that means then is, I don't believe that this idea of predestination, that God is choosing and working to save people, is a hindrance to salvation. Like, oh no, what if I'm not predestined? But I think it's actually the opposite. It's the only means that salvation can possibly happen. Unless you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit working in our lives to break the natural hold of sin, we will reject Christ. And yet, by the power of God... It is his means in which he is going to take our hardened hearts, give us his own son, soften our hearts so that we could even see and respond and then bring him and draw him to himself. So that's that's my favorite. That's my my place to go if I'm going to talk about this issue is John 6. And I encourage anyone um, to take a look at that passage because I think it just has so much to say about this issue. And there's much more we could go into, but that that's kind of my... That's my place. If, if I'm going to talk about this issue, I'm probably going to go there as one of my key places to think through it. Yeah. Mark, I think that's helpful. You asked the question, like, how do I know if I'm predestined or mentioned that idea in there? And I was thinking of a guy that I met with in Wyoming, and that was one of his questions. How do I know if I'm elect? And I would kind of wish I could go back and have another conversation with this guy because I just didn't know how to answer that question. So we were talking about it and it was something that he was wrestling with of, am I elect? Am I not? Yeah. And I think I spent some time trying to help him through this question, but honestly I missed the point because we can't 
look into God's eternal, unchanging mind and know if we're elect or not. But part of it is that's not where we look for salvation anyway. Jesus says, if you come to me. So I wish that I could go back in that conversation and say, hey, election matters. It's an important thing. But you don't know if you're elect by studying election. You know by coming to Jesus. Is my focus Christ? Am I looking to him for life? Am I being made like him by the power of the Holy Spirit? Is he changing me? My focus can't be election to know if I'm saved, because election on its own doesn't save me. Only Christ saves us. Yeah. And so I think I just missed the point in his question. Yeah. And I, th- I think it hits on the thing of often people feel like this idea of predestination is just God stiff-arming people. And mm-hmm. it's it's not him stiff-arming people. It's coming and being crucified for them and then enlivening their spirit to understand and believe. It's like it... So it's not the enemy of salvation. It is one of the means by which God um, ultimately works his salvation to reveal the truth of his son. And that's kind of why I try to think about this, not in uh, even as much of a debate light, but what are the blessings of God's predestination for us? And I usually go to Ephesians 1, which talks about God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And it just goes into this incredible list of all the blessings of what the implications of God choosing and electing and predestining us are. And it has all these incredible truths that we can stick to and know that we're forgiven by God, we're loved by God, we're adopted into his family and that he's completely for us and what gives me so much assurance in this is knowing that god knew before the creation world he chose me before the creation of the world he knew all of my sin past present future and he he still loved me and he still chose me and that gives me so much assurance in my life when i just feel like i don't measure up (laughs) i just feel that i'm not as close to God as I should be. Or when I just see my own sin, I know I have this assurance that God chose me and he doesn't regret making that decision. He doesn't regret paying the price in full for my sin, but he has sovereignly adopted me into his family. And that gives me a lot of assurance. And I think that brings a lot of joy and excitement to me because it's kind of despite me. Not because of how great I am, but to, despite my own sin, while I was at my worst, Christ died for me. So, Greg, uh, what would you say? What's your answer? How can predestination and free will uh, exist together? This is where I usually go with that. I just talk about what I mentioned earlier is our human nature is ultimately enslaved to sin. And so we have the real ability to make choices and decisions, but outside of God intervening in our lives, we would never choose God. And so in our ability to enact our will, we have that ability, but we don't have the ability to change our will. And in order to have our will changed, God has to intervene and give us 
a new heart, remove our heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh. He has to give us the faith to believe in Christ. And so that's kind of where I usually go with it. We have the ability to enact our will, but not the ability to change our will. In order for our will to be changed, we need God to intervene. And even the new nature, the new will, the ability to choose God is by God's grace alone and by faith in Christ alone, which is a gift from God that was ushered in through the cross and in the new covenant by Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, I think that's really helpful, even just in articulating part of what we all mean by free will, that our view would be that you can't change your will just haphazardly, but that you follow your will. And we always do what we desire to do. And this is one of the big things that Jonathan Edwards talks about in Freedom of the Will. Basically, the whole book comes down to this point of you always do what you want to do. And it takes God to change your desires so that you would follow him. And that would be more of the Calvinistic perspective. Some of that's Arminian might call it compatibilistic because they say that you don't really have free will if you can't choose your desires, that there has to be the ability to come with the possibility of accepting or rejecting God. So this is the idea of libertarian free will, that I could come to the situation multiple times and not every time I would choose the same thing. But from a more like reformed view, it would be every single time I'll make the same decisions because I decide based on what I most desire and that it takes God to be at work in our lives to change our desires, to make them new so that we would love him. Yeah. Doug, one, one good illustration I've used or one illustration I've used for libertarian versus compatibilistic free will is a libertarian free will would essentially say, you sit down at dinner and the waiter comes and they say, you know, we have steak and we have lobster and you can, you know, have whatever you want. If you sit down at dinner and um, you have no inclination either way, so your will is free, you can truly choose steak or you can truly choose lobster. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's sort of a toss. It, it's You could go either way and you could really choose either choice. And at first that seems like, yeah, of course you could choose either choice, but a compatibilistic view of free will, which is where it's important to know there's differing understandings of what we even mean when we say free will. Compatibilistic view of free will says the waiter comes and says, you know, you can have lobster or you can have steak. You hate lobster. Like you hate it. Like you don't enjoy it at all. Um, you're going to choose steak every time. It's like, why would you end up choosing lobster if you hate lobster and you don't enjoy the taste of it you're going to choose steak and the point of that is if you really are determined beforehand in any way then you're not actually enacting a libertarian free will because your your will is in a sense determined it's already set and the importance of that i think is when we look at the storyline of scripture can we actually say that our will is completely undetermined and unhindered and this is where we think of the idea of sin entering into the world. And Jesus says, you know, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that's where I think, oh, wait a second. So if we're slaves to sin, is it accurate to say that our will is entirely free? Uh, 
and that's where, again, the idea, if you're coming from Arminian perspective, you probably want to understand something like provenient grace, at least to account for that, that the idea of a libertarian, just completely undetermined will isn't really the way we act in any of life. There's, there's influences that are making, um, that are setting the decisions we're making. And so to understand there's differing views of free will and what is the storyline of scripture really posit as is our will completely unhindered by outside sources or is there a fall into sin that has actually corrupted our minds and our hearts and uh, has put us at enmity towards God. Greg, you were going to say something though. Yeah, I think uh, this kind of leads into also where I usually just go with this because that's kind of my understanding that I get to, but I think then what I really also want to get to after just do we have the ability to change our will is one aspect of our salvation that I think has been really um, maybe lumped in with this issue that there becomes a lot of confusion on. And I think that aspect is regeneration. And the Bible is really clear that when we accept Christ, we become a new creation. It says we're given a new nature and we're absolutely secure in that salvation. So you cannot become a Christian, then unbecome a Christian. You're not given and sealed with the spirit of God. And then it's taken from you. So you can't lose your salvation. That's very, very clear in scripture that you cannot lose your salvation. And that when you put your faith in Christ, you are made a new creation. And so what I try to really get people to when we're talking about this issue, whether you think that you, maybe there's all not go to battle all day on, did you initiate this regeneration or did God do it? I think that's important. I'm going to helpfully push, why do you believe what you believe? But I really want to get to the place where do we actually believe that when you become a Christian, you are a new creation and you are regenerated and you cannot lose your salvation. Um, Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of what I try to get. So we can talk then on who initiated that. But what I've kind of seen is that there's been what I've seen kind of lumped into this issue is almost a lack of assurance of salvation and thinking like I can get myself into salvation. Therefore, I can get myself out of it. I just don't do enough. But what I really want to help people see is you're regenerated, you're made a new creation. And what I've realized is when we kind of, we can see that very clearly in scripture. And once we get to that place and we agree upon that, I think there's a lot more momentum with where we can go with this and also a lot more assurance that we have in our salvation. And so I think that's just a really important thing to understand. We're We're regenerated and it's, our salvation isn't just a decision we get in and out of because mm. that's what I've kind of seen lumped in this whole issue as I'd say that most of our evangelical culture would more align with Arminianism. Um, I think that's kind of ushered in a whole lack of assurance of salvation that makes me anxious. And so can we at least get back to regeneration with wherever you align and assurance of salvation because of that new nature i think changing the topic just a little bit but there's the reality that both for the calvinist and for the arminian we've got a problem in how we think about this because each of us would agree that god knows the future 
that God isn't surprised when we make decisions, but before the world began, he knew who would believe in him. And the Calvinist would say he knows and predestines them, and then they come to faith. The Arminian would say God looks through the future, sees who will believe, and therefore predestines him. So the Arminian still believes in predestination, but the reality is for both of us, we agree that God already knows what's going to happen in such a way yeah. that it couldn't happen some other way. If God already knows the future, in a sense, it's set. So both the Calvinist and the Arminian still has a problem of do our actions matter if God already knows what's going to happen? Can't I just do what I want and then I'll get to heaven anyway, or I won't, but I can't do anything to change that, which I think sometimes is the way that it is argued. And so I think part of my thought is if God already knows the future, saying that we have a libertarian free will doesn't actually take that problem away because in a sense it's already set. But one of the ways that I think about this, if God already does know the future, and already promised in Isaiah 53 and in Genesis 3.15 that Christ would come and pay for our sins, does it matter that Jesus went to the cross if that was already God's plan for all of eternity? And I think we would all say yes. <laughs> Just the, the reality that God knows the future, that he's planned it, doesn't make those things irrelevant for them to happen. Jesus is truly wrestling in the Garden of, e uh, Garden of Gethsemane with the reality of what he's about to do. It truly mattered that he was obedient throughout his whole life. It truly matters that he goes to the cross and rises again, because apart from that, there would be no Christianity. So to say that God knows the future, therefore what we do doesn't matter, that's like not what scripture says. And so the fact that God knows the future doesn't take away the fact that he works through us, that he works through natural means, that our decisions actually do make a difference like Christ did. Because if we want to say, well, since God already knows the future, it doesn't matter if I pray. Uh, no, we can't come to that because God tells us that it matters if we pray. We yeah. can't get around that. The God already knows what's going to be the result of those prayers. But there's the truth that if I am like unkind to my wife, Reagan, then we're going to have marital trouble. But to say, oh, I had no choice in that, it's just because God predestined it. Nah, it doesn't work like that. D Doug, one spot I think of is Ephesians 2.10 with that. It's after, you know, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's very clear. We're not saved by what we do. And then it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as a Christian, if you, mm -hmm. if you walk in the life that God has prepared for you beforehand, it's not a slight on the significance of your life. I think it actually adds the value and says, this is who I am and this is what I was made for. I was made to do this. Yeah. And people talk like that. People say, you know, I was made for this. This is what I was designed for. And that doesn't negate for meaning. It seems like that actually is a lot of ways uh, a bolstering or a foundation of meaning, of having an intention, a purpose, a design for your life. Yeah, even there, I think we have a tendency to create some false dichotomies that don't need to 
exist with what you were saying, Doug, prayer, because I think that that's one of the big ones. And God's preordained to work through the prayer of saints, his saints and of Christians. And the reality is if we pray more, there will probably be more answers to pray in our life. And if we pray less, then we'll see less happen probably through those things. So it does yeah. matter. Our choices matter. We have responsibility and let's not draw out wrong assumptions Yeah. based on these doctrines. Yeah. And I feel like there's probably like a mountain of misunderstandings that we could get into as we even think about this one. And I think there is so much misunderstanding. I think there's so much confusion. And I think even on both sides, just like slinging of accusations of, well, if you believe this and you obviously don't believe this, like if you're an Arminian, you obviously, um, you think that you saved yourself. It's like, ah, that's not really fair. Or like if you're a Calvinist, you obviously don't think anything you do matters and you don't, shouldn't go evangelize to people. It's like, well, that's not, that's not really fair. And so I think there's a significance of having a generosity, even when you discuss these questions of what do people actually believe and what are the views that are held? Doug, what, what are you thinking? I was just thinking along the lines of what you're saying, there does need to be a generosity. Uh, one of the things that I'm doing is putting together a workshop on predestination and free will because somewhere around like 10 students have asked me about it in the last year. So I haven't done one of these workshops before, but even as I was looking into it, I found myself more sympathetic towards people that disagree with me on this than I think I've ever been before and realizing okay, I actually do see how you get where you are. And okay, I see how you interpret Ephesians 1, Romans 9, John 6 in a way that's different than me. I still disagree, but I get how you could actually end up there. And I think we need to be able to have charity in how we deal with people that disagree with us here. And I realize some of the things that I would say, this is what an Arminian believes, no, they wouldn't say that, and I'd be straw-manning them. And there's always that risk when we're arguing to just give like a poor view of, well, if you believe that you're the one who decides by faith, then you don't actually believe that you're dependent on the grace of God. No Arminian's going to tell you that. They do believe that they're dependent on the grace of God. So let's be kind. Let's be charity. Uh, let's show charity to people that disagree with us. And make sure that we understand what they're saying before we lay into them. Because it's easy to lay into people and just argue and feel good about myself and just take pride in the things that I think and know and believe. And it's not that there's no arrogant Armenians, because there are, and I've been around them. But it seems like I've probably been around more arrogant Calvinists than Arminians. Maybe that's the circles that we're in. Maybe it's because of like this excitement that sometimes a new Calvinist can feel about their doctrine. But it's kind of a sad thing if this doctrine that ought to make us humble before God leads to pride. Yeah. yeah. And one kind of last question that I had for you guys, and I have a couple thoughts on this, but as we talk about maybe some of the assurances that we felt like we've had from just our understanding of predestination. What are, what are maybe some positive aspects of that? Or what are some ways that believing that has given you confidence in your own life and your ministry, just as you move forward, what are, what are ways this functionally impacts your life? 
I, I would say for me, it's the idea of Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And for me personally, it, it's this idea of from start to finish, God is faithful over my salvation. Uh, I have I have no hope in me. I have no confidence in me. I believe that God, Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, um, that we would be holy and blameless for him in love he predestined us for it. Or even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, does it then go in love he predestined us for adoption as sons, Doug? Yeah, somewhere along those lines. <laughs> yeah, and so chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined for adoption, and this idea of God who began a good work will bring it to the end. And I think for me that's that's where it hits me of – what's my confidence on a day-to-day basis when I think about Christianity, when I think about the cross, when I think about knowing God, it's just, I have nothing. And even like going into this, it's like, I deserve nothing from God. I do deserve wrath. I do deserve judgment. Yet somehow the incredible grace of God is that he saved me. He continues to be faithful to me today. He continues to put up with me, but not just that he delights in me. He has joy in me. He's making me more like his son, Jesus, and he will absolutely see it to the end. And I can rest in that today. Yeah, I love that, Mark. Just where is my hope to be saved? Yeah. Uh, It's got to be in Christ all the way through, not my ability to trust him, not my ability to get out of the bed loving him tomorrow, but all the way through, my hope is Jesus. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and Yeah, that's true for every Christian. I think another way that it's encouraging to me is as I think about evangelism, as I think about doing ministry, it's so easy to just think if I say the right things, if I come up with the right plan, if I have the right arguments, then people will change. And if they're not changing, it's because I'm doing something wrong. Now, I very well might be doing something wrong, and that could be part of what's going on. But to realize... Oh, the flesh is no help at all. The spirit is the one who gives life. I'm actually dependent on the Holy Spirit to make change in people's lives. I can't change somebody else. I can't make them believe what I believe. But to actually stop, pray, depend on the Lord to be at work, and to find that my identity isn't wrapped up in how well I can see fruit being produced in other people's lives, because I'm trusting that it's not ultimately about me, but that God uses me. I get to partner with him and work, but he's ultimately the one that I'm trusting for my salvation, and he's the one that I'm trusting for other people. So that ought to lead me to pray, and it ought to lead me to be humble in these things. Ought to lead to those things more than it really does practically in my life. And I want to pray more. I want to be more dependent on him rather than just thinking, oh, it's all about me and what I do and say. What was that for you, Greg? Yeah. I mean, what you guys are saying is right on. What I mentioned earlier, just knowing that from start to finish, my salvation is secured by Christ, not by my performance, not by a decision I made, but by Christ alone. And that's what I'm looking to. That's what I'm trusting in. And I know that I'm going to be with God for eternity because of that. 
and so that's I think that's such an important one and I'm looking constantly to Christ not to myself but then like you guys were saying I think as I think about doing missions as I think about reaching the nations and our calling for that and as I think about my friends who are maybe just hardened towards the Lord or people that we're trying to reach out to in ministry contexts that are hardened towards the Lord. Isaiah 59 one says the arms of the Lord are, arm or arms of the Lord are not too short to save. And mm-hmm. if I really believe this, there's just no heart that's too hard that God can't just absolutely change and transform. And that gives me such yeah. assurance because like you were saying, if it's just about my intellect, there's some people that maybe seem so far away and yet God is has a complete ability to change and transform their heart. And that gives me more and more motivation to share my faith because I know that God can change their heart and pray for them because God could absolutely do it. And, but then also, I think this truth creates so much unity among ministries and churches because so often we do have a focus or w- the way I can function. And I'm sure a lot of people would probably relate to the same thing as thinking we have the best method we have the best technique the way that navigators does it is the best with our one-to-one discipleship model or if you talk to other ministries they'd say our ministry model is the best because we focus on evangelism or our ministry model is the best because of this and there's things i think that are important to have and there's reasons i like what i do there's um good things to hold on to and need to even fight for but the truth is if it is just about that, then I think it can create pride. But knowing that God's the one who saves and he works through all these different methods and ministries and things like that, I think it does create a humility and unity where we're not opposed to each other to try to always just fight for the best method of ministry, but we're united in the grace of God and in working together to be used by God to see more come to know and share in Christ. Yeah. So next week we're going to talk more on the idea of the problem of evil suffering and get more into that. I think even with this discussion, there is so much more that we could dive into. I would guess that someone who has talked about this discussion a lot will be like, they missed so much, and that's fine. Um, we didn't get into a lot. We didn't get into Romans 9. We didn't get into some of these big passages that we could kind of meet through. And I think part of that is we're wanting to approach this topic saying, okay, how do we understand this? Where do we come from? Not necessarily getting fully into the weeds of all the things and defending and um, arguing every position, but I think one final thought I have on it is kind of my heart for this issue is in some ways to reframe or rephrase the way that we're kind of going about it culturally as Christians. And what I mean by that is I feel like a lot of times this topic comes down to this idea of, you know, is Calvinism true? Is Arminianism true? Do we have free will? Is there predestination? And we almost say, you know, well, Christians have disagreed for years about this, so you can't really know. And we almost, it seems to me like leave it at a sort of agnosticism, as in you can't really know, um, hold to some sort of a view, but just don't hold it too tightly, and that's humility. And if you hold too dogmatically to a view, then you're not actually being humble anymore. 
And I think that's somewhat problematic. And the main reason I would say that is because, again, when we look in the scripture, I do think there are things that we can know. And specifically in the life of Jesus, I think that these issues, especially the issue of election, was so significant to his ministry. It's how he understood his rejection, where people would reject him. He said, you know, it's the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. But it's also how he understood his acceptance. You know, when he asked uh, his disciples, you know, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' response to him is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And you think about that, and Jesus is here. There's this confession of faith made to Jesus, and he says, you know, my Father in heaven has revealed that to you, Simon. So it seems like he sees the significance of what's going on in his life, in his ministry, that those who reject him, they're hardened by sin. Um, And there's a passage, too, that is kind of fascinating, where it seems like Jesus actually not only believes and holds to this and sees it as applicable to how he understands his life and ministry and those who reject him and those who accept him, but he actually seems to delight in it. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus it says, at that time Jesus declared, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." And what I see in there is Jesus rejoicing actually in the doctrine of election that God has revealed these things to the children, hidden them from the wise and the discerning. And the significance of that is that Christ is saying this is actually, this. it, it informed the life and ministry of Christ. And so I think what I would say, and I want to say this with, with humility, but I think the tragedy is that we've turned this into an issue where we say don't dogmatically take a stance don't don't hold to a position too tightly when actually I think it's meant to be a, something that informs the way we live and understand our ministry. And if that's true, that means that holding to a position like saying, I do believe predestination is true. And that's where I, I honestly would land. I, I, do, I do think this idea of God choosing people um, by his grace is what the Bible teaches. But like Doug, you said, that doesn't promote arrogance. Actually, the most humble man who ever lived was Christ. No one's outdone him. And yet I think it seems clear from his life and his ministry that he actually believed this and it informed his ministry and he lived by it. And so that's the push I'm going to make. You know, obviously there'd be people who disagree with me and I'll be, I'd be happy to talk more about that. And I would be happy to call them brothers and sisters in Christ. But I do think we should push to say this can actually inform how you understand your life and ministry. And it, I believe it did for Christ and um, is significant. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.